wonderful, just say it's a real pleasure to be here. It's 25 years since I was last in San Francisco and I wasn't at the Buddhist Centre there on that occasion. So yeah, it's lovely to be here. So I'm going to talk a bit about mindfulness and various sort of health-related issues. The short title is Mindfulness for Just About Everything, which kind of sums it up. Certainly in the UK, there's been a, a whole great surge of interest in mindfulness. Although I, I suspect actually we might be a bit behind the US, because I think over here you've been, there's been a longer history of interest in mindfulness for health-related issues. And in the UK, it's been taken up very widely for stress, pain, anxiety, depression, personality disorder, and for addiction. And we've been running courses at our centre in London for the last two years. So what I wanted to do in this talk was really have a look at this phenomenon of mindfulness and how it's applied to various health-related conditions and particularly look at its relationship to the Buddhist tradition, in other words, where it comes out of, how it relates to the Buddhist tradition. So over the weekend, if those of you coming on the weekend, that'll be much more practical. So this is more of a, if you like, a conceptual background to mindfulness for health-related conditions and, as I said, where it comes out of the Buddhist tradition. So I'm going to start with a bit of therapeutic history, as it were, of meditation and Buddhism. And this is not comprehensive, but I just want to draw out a few strands. Starting with meditation, meditation first became popular in the West in the 1960s when initially it was seen as something of a cure-all and people started doing studies in the 70s and 80s on meditation and particularly meditation with an emphasis on concentration and relaxation, particularly a lot of transcendental meditation studies. And these early studies showed that TM was beneficial for anxiety, for high blood pressure, for cannabis and for general well-being. There were some problems, though, with these early studies, which, when you did a, a comparison, it showed that actually wasn't much difference between just sitting quietly or other forms of relaxation. So, in other words, although there was some benefit, it wasn't very specific to the meditation. Then there was another strand which looked at the Buddhist suttas and looked at how the Buddha behaved as a therapist. Somebody looked at how you could see him in effect of doing behaviour therapy. So there's a couple of stories to give you examples of this. So there's a story of a particular king, and this king had a problem. He had a problem that he slept a lot, and that he couldn't get up, and eventually got so bad that he, well, I was going to say he went to see the Buddha, but of course he couldn't go to see the Buddha, he couldn't get up. But um, he got someone got the Buddha to come and see him, and the Buddha diagnosed his problem was overeating, which of course, you know, with the modern epidemic of obesity is somewhere relevant today, perhaps. Anyway, what the Buddha did is he gave a little prescription for the king, which was that when he was served his food, he wasn't allowed to eat the last mouthful. And it was supervised by the prince, and when the prince was supervising this, just if the king was going to, you know, elbow in and get that last mouthful, the Buddha gave him a verse to remind him of why he was not to have that last mouthful. And so each day he had a little bit less food, and in time he, of course, became lean and healthy, and he had no problems with sleep, and he could get up. So it seems from a modern point of view, that would be a bit of behaviour therapy to do that. So examines the behaviour, diagnoses the behavioural problem and gave a treatment. 
There's another one, which is probably a better well-known story, which is the story of Kisa Gotemi. So Kisa Gotemi suffered from what we might think of today as a pathological grief reaction. She was a lady who'd had quite a difficult background. She became married, and in those days in India, when you married, if you went to the husband's family, and as a woman, you were kind of the bottom of the pile, you were a bit of a skivvy who was pushed about. That is, until you gave birth to a child, and particularly if the child was a son, then your social status raised. So she gave birth to her son, and she was very happy, and of course very attached to her son. Unfortunately, when her son wasn't very old, he died. One account says he was bitten by a snake. And she was grief-struck. She just couldn't believe that this had happened to her. And she went round, not believing that her baby was dead, asking people for medicine for her baby to make him well again. And eventually someone said, go and see the Buddha. And the Buddha said, yes, I can give you medicine for your baby. And the medicine is a mustard seed. However, the mustard seed must come from a house where nobody has died. So Kisa Gautam was very happy. She went rushing off. And she went to house after house after house. Everywhere people were very happy to give her a mustard seed, but each house she came to, an uncle had died, a daughter had died, a husband had died, somebody had died. And eventually she realised, of course, that death happens. It's inevitable. And she realised her own son was of course dead, couldn't be brought back to life, and she became a disciple of the Buddha, and according to tradition became enlightened. So, again, just coming from our particular perspective, again, you could see that as a behavioural experiment, which in this case was very efficacious for Kisa Gotemi understanding what was going on. There's been a whole line of thought, as I said, like this, in terms of looking at the suitors in terms of the Buddha acting as a behaviour therapist. And it's been suggested that particularly if you're working with people from an ethnic Buddhist background, that could be quite useful. I haven't seen anybody who's then actually really applied it in another way to Westerners. But it's an interesting line of thought. Then another line, which more is the topic that we're looking at today, is mindfulness. And mindfulness was particularly taken up, first of all, by Kabat-Zinn in Massachusetts. And he set up a stress clinic, it was called. But what he predominantly took was people with chronic pain. So he took people who had pain that Western doctors couldn't do anything for anymore, any sort of pain. So in a way, they didn't have anything to lose by going to see Kabat-Zinn. And what he set up was an eight-week mindfulness meditation course with some yoga exercises in and a one-day retreat during the course of it. And what he found was that two-thirds of the people benefited from this. And even more remarkably, four years later when they did a follow-up, people were still benefiting from it, particularly if they'd continued with the meditation or even if they'd continued with informal practice, which I'll refer to later. He also did work with anxiety and then later other conditions like psoriasis and this became called mindfulness-based stress reduction. So in a way Kabat-Zinn started this off and then mindfulness started being used much more in other things. So it started being used as part of other sorts of therapy. So it's used in acceptance and commitment therapy which has been 
developed by someone called Stephen Hayes in Utah, I think. And he found that helpful for depression and anxiety and for some other conditions. It's also been used in something called dialectical behaviour therapy, DBT, which was particularly developed for by Marshall Line for um, working with people with borderline personality disorder, although it's also been adapted for use in substance use. In these things, mindfulness is just like one component of the therapy. And then more recently, there's something called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is for recurrent depression. And this really built on Kabat-Zinn's work and is shown to be effective for people who've had more than three episodes of depression, so people with recurrent depression. And in Britain, we have these things called the NICE guidelines, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, which says what are sort of effective treatments. And recently, MBCT has been put into the NICE guidelines for treatment of recurrent depression. So that's MBCT. And then there's MBRP, which is Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention, which is using, again, the same sort of stuff, but for preventing relapse into addictive disorders. And as regards that, there's been some theoretical papers written about it. And here and there, I think people are starting to do work with it. So I've started running courses on it at the centre where I teach and in the health service where I work as well. But basically adapting the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for addiction. So... In a way, what's come out of all this, which is a sort of bit of an overview of Buddhism and meditation used therapeutically, is that mindfulness in particular seems to have come out as being something that's very important or very useful as a therapeutic tool. And it seems to be more specific than just meditation in general, which might have a sort of calming or relaxing effect. If we now turn to the Buddhist tradition and have a look at mindfulness there, we find that mindfulness is very important in the Buddhist tradition. So you get it as one limit of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment, the Buddhist-like list, as many of you I'm sure will know. It's one of the five spiritual faculties, so it's the uh, central one of those, the one that in a way harmonises the others. And it particularly occurs in something called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the kind of central sutta that really talks a lot about mindfulness, and which I'll be referring to quite a bit. There's been two very good commentaries that came out in 2003, one by Sangharachita called Living with Awareness, which is probably in your bookshop, and one by Bhikkhu Analio, which again is a very good commentary on it, which might also be in the bookshop. I'll just say a few words about this sutta. Quite often in Buddhist suttas, you have a whole story before you get onto the main teaching. In this one, the Buddha kind of just goes straight to the point. He gets, in this case, the monks' attention, and then he says to them, Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way for the realisation of Nibbāna, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So actually the Buddha's making a very big claim here. He's saying it's the direct way. Other translations translate it as the only way, although probably, anyway, Analia suggests that probably isn't correct. It's more that it's, it takes you straight there, in this case straight to enlightenment, rather than being the exclusive way of getting there. 
So let's have a look at what mindfulness is. There are two main words to use to translate mindfulness, and they're used a bit synonymously, but they have slightly different meanings. One is sati, and the other is sampajanya. So sati is particularly refers to awareness of the present moment, or bare awareness, it's sometimes talked about. But it also has a meaning of recollection or memory. In other words, it's kind of like you understand what's going on in the present, partly because you're able to recollect the past. And particularly, you understand the ethical significance of what you're about. And then there's sampajanya, which means mindfulness of purpose or clear comprehension. And this is more, if you like, future regarding. And particularly, it's mindfulness with respect to what you're trying to do, what your goal is which might be to gain enlightenment, for example. And sometimes the two are put together. They are on the Satipatthana Sutta quite a bit as Satisampajana, which is usually translated as mindfulness and clear knowledge. In other words, it's knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it. So you're completely and fully and utterly present, but you also know where you're about, what you're off to, you know, and you also deeply understand the significance of what you're doing. Very rich word. In the suttas, you get various analogies for sati or mindfulness. I'll talk you through a few of those. So one is, it's like climbing a tower. So you get this idea, you've got this tower, and you get perspective, you can sort of see, you know, like climbing half dome or something like that, as I was in Yosemite yesterday, today. So it's like you get up really high and you just see, see a long way. There's also a sense of detachment as well, I think, inherent in that analogy. And there's the idea of the surgeon's probe. So the surgeon's probe is like going into things to gather information to find out, is that a... You know, what, is that a cyst or is that a hard tumour or what's going on there? Then there's a couple more to do with the idea of balance. So one is a skilled charioteer and one is carrying a bowl of oil on your head, this idea of not spilling a drop of this perfectly full... And you're probably walking on a tight road as well. But, um. <laughs> then another one is a gatekeeper of a town So the idea of the gatekeeper is that they allow bona fide citizens in, but they keep out unwanted individuals. So the idea of this is in a way of guarding the mind and having a bit of an overview of the mind. And then finally, there's another analogy, is having wild animals tied to a strong post. So it's this idea that it has a, a stabilising effect or an unshakeability, unshakeable effect. So again, lots of sort of rich associations with this idea of mindfulness. So if we look at the Satipatthana Sutta, it covers mindfulness in four main areas, usually referred to as foundations, which are body, feeling in the sense of whether something's pleasurable or unpleasurable, mental states like anger, jealousy, love, and mindfulness of doctrinal formulations, referred to as dharma, such things as the Four Noble Truths. And in a way, particularly applying those doctrinal formulations to your mind. So in other words, using them as a guide to get a sense of what's going on in your mind. And after each bit of description of these foundations, the Buddha says this, in this way, 
in regard to the body, or the feeling, or whichever one it is. He abides contemplating the body internally, externally, both internally and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body. There's quite a few little bits there which I'll I'll run through. So first of all, he contemplates it internally, externally, or both. So in other words, when we're practicing mindfulness, we're aware of ourselves, but we're also aware of other people. So internally and externally. And and perhaps the latter has not been explored so much in contemporary dharmic practice. And then the advice is to contemplate the nature of arising, passing away, and both. In other words, it's looking at what brings things into being and what leads to things to go away. So how come something comes into our experience? How come it goes away from our experience? And then there's awareness just for the sake of knowledge and continued mindfulness. So I think what this is getting at is about not getting lost in lots of associations, which, again, I'll come back to later. And then finally, abiding independently, not clinging to anything in the world. And the way this is where it all leads to from the Buddhist point of view, the eventual state of complete detachment and freedom, whereas in a way the first three are methods of how to get there. Okay, so that's a bit of a a background on mindfulness from the Buddhist tradition. So what I now want to move on is look at how this is useful therapeutically. And basically, I think you can think of it in terms of being four main areas or four aspects of mindfulness that are helpful. And these four are, firstly, clocking what's going on. Secondly, staying with experience. Thirdly, having a biggest perspective And fourthly, choice. So we'll look at those in turn. The first thing is just clocking what's happening. So when we're doing mindfulness meditation, particularly if I'm teaching mindfulness for depression or addiction, the instruction is each time you get distracted, because of course the mind wanders off all the time, just to gently note where the mind has gone to and then bring it back to whatever the object of the meditation is, whether that's the body or the breath. So... In doing that, it's like you're just noting where the mind's gone. So you start getting a hang of where your mind habitually goes off to. But then each time you come back to whatever is the breath or the body, you are just stepping out of just getting caught up in whatever is going on. So a lot of the time, we run around on automatic pilot. I don't know if you've had the experience of driving home and you're going to stop at the supermarket and you find yourself already gone past the supermarket because you went on the habitual route home or you walk into the sitting room and you can't remember what on earth it was you were going to very importantly get there. I mean, I've one or two nods there. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, in a sense, it's great, isn't it? We can do things on the automatic pilot. It's fantastic. I mean, if you imagine trying... You remember what it was like for those of you who drive when you first learned to drive? It was just like... I felt a bit like that only a few days ago when I was you know, pulling out of the car hire and 
downtown San Francisco, trying to navigate by myself and driving on the wrong side of the road in the car, but I couldn't work out how it worked. Um, it was complete scary monsters. Anyway, but you know, a couple of days later I'm just driving around you know, like I've lived here all my life. So it's really good that we can do automatic pilot, but it can be a real nuisance as well. So for example, sometimes there might be something that's sort of niggling away at you, and in a way you just don't clock it, and it might be that you're in a bit of a bad mood. But actually, because you've not clocked it and not really faced it, then it can control you because we get pushed around by our mental states if we're not aware of them. And particularly if you suffer from or are prone to depression, what can happen is maybe your mood's just gone down a bit for some reason or other, and then that can start triggering negative thoughts, and then that can lead to the mood going down a bit, and it gets into a downward spiral. And that can very quickly escalate, in a way, out of control, if it's not caught, if it's just, you know, if it's just been going on an automatic pilot, and then you can find yourself in a really depressed state and not quite understood why. Similarly with addiction, there might be something that's distressing you, and that can trigger thoughts of, I really need a drink to cope with this, which can sort of go on again a bit out of awareness. And then before you know it, you're suddenly having really strong urges to have a drink, which are very difficult to fight. Or seemingly, another sort of one is sometimes called in the trade, seemingly irrelevant decisions. Seemingly irrelevant decisions are where like, a series of apparently innocent decisions in themselves, like, it's a beautiful evening today, it'd be lovely to go out for a walk with the dog, the dog hasn't been out for a walk, I must see the daffodils in the park because it's springtime and they're so beautiful, and guess what, the other side of the pot is an off-licence, and before you know it, you've got a bottle. So... Yeah, that's the same sort of thing. It just sort of goes on a bit outside awareness. So automatic pilot, which is a very habitual way of being, and actually we need it to operate, but it can also be quite dangerous if you're, well, actually for everyone, but particularly if you're prone to things like depression and addiction. Whereas if it can be caught early, like a change in mood like that, they're much, much easier to deal with than when you've really spiralled down. And also, this just this thing of clocking what's going on, starting to learn the links. For, for example, you might discover that you're particularly prone to negative thoughts if you're tired or premenstrual or something like that. So in other words, this thing about noting the nature of arising. So in what, under what conditions do these unhelpful thoughts particularly arise and therefore you particularly need to be on the ball? So that's all part of clocking our experience and really noticing what's going on. The second thing is staying with experience and particularly staying with negative experience. And in a way we could see this a bit like both the surgeon's probe, this sort of investigating what's going on, and this idea of climbing the tower, of being a bit detached from our experience in the sense of not being caught up in it. So what we're trying to do when we're trying to stay with our experience is we're not trying to change the experience. That's very important. Not trying to change it. If anything, we're trying to deepen into the experience, but avoiding the extremes of either reacting to it or pushing it away, so that I'm suppressing it. Basically, trying to push the things away doesn't work. It's the, don't think about a pink elephant, 
dwarfs and coefficients. So when we try and do that, like, don't, I've got a negative thought, don't, don't, don't think it, or, you know, I need, I need a, a fix, don't think about it. Pushing it away just brings it, rebounds it back into awareness. So suppression is very unhelpful, but equal other habitual reactions may also be unhelpful. So the instruction instead, when we had noticed something difficult arising, is to try and open up to it, to try and soften towards it, to try and develop or try and have a, as best as we can a sense of acceptance. There's a very nice roomy poem which gives a bit of flavour of this. That's called The Guest House. I'll just read that for you. So it goes, This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still, treat each guest honourably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So, just accepting as best as we can whatever it is, whatever, whatever is happening. And also, with kindness, again, as best as we're able to. Because it's important to try and find a flavour of mindfulness that isn't cold. I think mindfulness, when it's fully there, it's not cold. So it's got a kindly aspect to it, or a metaphor aspect to it. And so we just keep practicing that. We just keep practicing again and again, being with difficult experience, so that we're increasingly able to tolerate difficult experience, so that increasingly we feel confident of being able to handle whatever comes our way. As opposed to a more habitual reaction, which might be a sense of, I can't cope with this. So when we have that thought, I can't cope with this, that immediately sets off anxiety, depression. It just increases the distress. Or it can lead to substance use as a way of avoiding it. Or if we think in terms of uh, actual physical pain, you think, oh, I can't cope with this. Then the automatic view tense up around the pain, which actually makes the pain worse. So that sort of can't cope reaction sort of spirals it in a way. So if you remember in that there was part of that refrain that the Buddha was describing where he says, mindfulness that there is a body is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And so what I was alluding to earlier, and in a way it's very relevant here, is in other words, so there isn't a whole mental proliferation. So your mind doesn't just go off and off in a whole chain reaction depending on what's just happened. So, to do that, body awareness is particularly helpful to try and really investigate exactly what's going on, to find out just exactly what is happening, to really explore pain, rather than just putting a label of, this is pain, I can't bear it, to just what is that like, a whole myriad of changing sensations, and even to become interested in 
whatever's going on. So in that way, we don't fall into the getting anxious about being anxious or getting depressed about being depressed or getting angry about being depressed and so on. So it's like cutting through. This sort of staying with our experience enables us to cut through a lot of this proliferation. In a way, I think particularly this staying with is like the really central key to making a change to things like anxiety and depression and relapse into addiction. So the third area is perspective. So if we look at mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression, which is perhaps the thing I'm most familiar with, was set up originally to find a way of using CBT to help prevent relapse, but that could be delivered in a group format. And what you get in cognitive therapy, CBT, is you get people to challenge their negative thoughts. So, for example, there might be a scenario where it happens, somebody's walking down the road, and they recognise someone over the, across the other side of the road, and they wave at them, and the person doesn't respond. And someone who's prone to depression might immediately fall into, oh, what have I done? They obviously hate me, as an interpretation of that. So what you do in CBT is you notice, you write all that down, I believe that they hate me, and then you look for alternatives like maybe they didn't see me, maybe they were in a bad mood, and, well, if, they, if that's the way they treat me, do I want them to be my friend anyway, if they do hate me? So there might be all these alternative ways of thinking about it. What happens in CBT, if it's successful, is you keep doing these diaries and you keep challenging these beliefs, and... What eventually happens is you get a change on an implicit level where basically you don't take the thought so seriously. So you might still have this thought, oh, she hates me because she didn't wave at me. But you think, oh, well. You just don't take it. You, You see it much more as provisional. So what is implicit in CBT is made explicit particularly in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, in MBCT. So the people who developed MBCT, as I say, they were, they were cognitive therapists. They set out to develop this way of, you know, a group version of CBT. They got interested in Kabat-Zinn's work and thought, oh, mindfulness, that could be quite useful. Let's try and put a bit of mindfulness into our CBT. But actually what they ended up with was really a mindfulness training with a bit of CBT thrown in in the end. And what's key part of this is making this very explicit, what is implicit in CBT. So thoughts are just seen as thoughts rather than necessarily as facts. It's so easy to believe what goes on in our mind. It's so easy to get caught up in it. You know, we have a thought, I'm rubbish, and we think, oh, or she did that because I'm a terrible person, and again, oh. It has that sinking of feeling. It's amazing how sticky our thoughts are, how we just, we just hold on to them and get caught up in them. Again, for those of you who've meditated, which I imagine many of you have done, it's so easy, isn't it, to just get caught up on a train of thoughts before you know it, you're woof, gone off somewhere. So what we train to do in MBCT is really to see thoughts just as passing phenomena, we just recognise, in a way, that we've all got lots of garbage in our head. We just, you know, you know put the cards on the table, let's face it. 
<laughs> it's true for me. I sometimes think, I can't believe I'm thinking that again. Anyway. Um, but you just recognise, that's what the mind really just sort of throws up this sometimes rather tedious, repetitive, and very, very occasionally interesting um, stuff yet we so easily get caught up in. So what we do is we just see it, as I said, as passing phenomena. So we just see thoughts, they just arise, they pass away, we don't need to take them seriously. And again, that's a real key learning if we cannot take our thinking so seriously. So each time we return to the breath, each time we return to the body, it's like we step out of taking our thoughts so seriously. So again, it's a bit like this idea of climbing the tower, as mentioned. And in the refrain, this idea of things arising, passing away, and both. In other words, seeing that things are impermanent. We can increasingly recognise that things will pass. So negative thoughts, though they arise, though sometimes they can feel absolutely torrential, they will pass. Similarly, urges to engage in unhelpful behaviour may be very, very strong, they will pass. And the more we can see that, the more confidence we can have in that. And again, in the refrain, it talks about internally and externally. So we can just reflect on how it happens to other people as well. It doesn't just happen to me. That actually, in a way, this, these sort of thoughts, this stuff, it's just an impersonal process, in a way, depending on conditions, our particular thoughts well, to do with our own personal conditions, which may be our childhood, it may be recent events, it may just simply be that we just creep thinking, you know, in that way. Again, you know, if you sort of look at addiction, for example, quite often there may be particular early events that have led someone towards, say, using drink, but then once it gets established, then actually you suddenly find you need a drink because you're depressed, because you're anxious, because you've had a row, because you're watching the television, because you're celebrating the World Cup, and it's sort of like, you know, you always need a drink. It's sort of every, every situation. It just gets associated with more and more things. So that's perspective. So know that particularly changing our perspective on our thoughts and the other phenomena that are happening in our minds. And the final one is choice. And really that follows on from the other things. That actually, once we've clocked what's going on, once we've learned to be with difficult experience rather than to flee from it psychically or to get rid of it by reaching for a substance, we're then in a much better position to decide what is the best thing to do. And this, in a way, is mindfulness of purpose. And... In a way, meditation, again, can be very useful from that point of view because it can sometimes create a space of what sometimes people talk of as wise mind to arise. So if we can just sit with something, then sometimes a solution, a helpful solution, will just manifest, will just arise. So what I'm suggesting is there are four useful things to help with various health conditions, which is, first of all, clocking what's going on, learning to be with our experience, particularly difficult experience, changing our perspective on what's going on, and allowing wiser choice and choosing wisely dependent on that. So they're really useful skills. They can help with recurrent depression. 
with anxiety, with pain, with preventing relapse into addiction. But they can also be very, just very useful for life in general. Because all of us at times get anxious, feel depressed, avoid our experience when perhaps that's not the most helpful thing to do. And in a way it's an investigation of our experience, a way of being with our experience that can just go deeper and deeper. It's said that after the Buddha gained enlightenment, that he continued practicing Satipatthana. He continued deepening his understanding, and he enjoyed it. So that's why he did it. So for whatever reason, in a way, well, we can deepen our awareness. Again, returning to this refrain, noticing things arising, passing away. We can notice more and more just how things change until we really get in our bones this sense of impermanence in ourselves and in other people, that we can see more and more fully and know it, as I said, more and more fully, how we are in a flux, how we are a set of processes, and can even, in a way, just more and more enjoy that sense of play, of how things just arise and pass away. So that the more we can then do that, then in a way, the less we'll actually hold tightly to our experience. And we then won't be so pulled around by it, we won't be so controlled by it, we won't be so fooled by it. We can see it for what it is. So Sati Sampajanya, mindfulness and clear knowledge, basically, from a Buddhist perspective, leads to just vision and knowledge of things as they are. In a way, it's another way of saying the same thing. In other words, it eventually leads to freedom because, as I said, you're just not controlled by your experience in the same way. So, as the Buddha said, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realisation of Nibbāna, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So in other words, in a way what you get from the Buddha is an invitation to take this path as far as we want, whether that's to surmount particular sorrows of recurring depression or anxiety, or to help overcome, help deal with physical pain, or whether it's to move towards complete awakening until eventually one is abiding, independent, and no longer clinging to anything in the world. Well, there's lots of places in the suitors you can get a bit of sense of that. But when I was writing this talk, it reminded me of sometimes of the songs of realisations you get, where people, when they gain enlightenment, they give these little verse which just expresses their sense of freedom. So I thought I'd just end with one of those. So this is by Kotita, and his... Song of realization was this. Dead to the world and its troubles, he recites mantras, mind unruffled, shaking distractions away. Like the wind, God scatters a few forest leaves. 